when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. On the 25th of June, 1950, North Korean forces invaded South Korea. The peninsula had been captured from the Japanese in 1945, just at the end of the war, and it had been divided a little bit like Germany between the victorious allies. The Soviet bloc dominated the north of the peninsula. The Americans, Western allies, controlled the southern half. The North Korean dictator Kim Il-sung with Soviet and Chinese backing, thinking the Americans wouldn't really mind, decided to use force in 1950 to unify Korea under his rule. He chose poorly. American, British and other UN troops rushed to the south to stem the tide of the North Korean advance. So the fighting then seesawed up and down the peninsula. The Chinese army intervened when it looked like Kim's forces were close to utter defeat. And after around a year of fighting, the front line had solidified into a kind of static front, roughly, well, close to today's border. But there were many, many months, there were years of fighting ahead. It was a bloody war. At least three million North and South Koreans, service people and civilians, killed. A huge number of Americans, 37,000 Americans killed, nearly 100,000 wounded. And for the British, over 1,000 killed and 2,500 wounded. Around 60,000 members of the British Armed Forces served in Korea. It was a huge deployment and was... Britain's bloodiest, costliest conflict since 1945-1946. So in this podcast, I went to the Royal Hospital Chelsea in London, which has been looking after Britain's army veterans since the 17th century. And I talked to four British veterans, uh, three of whom, Arthur Teasdale, Trevor John and Jerry Farmer, fought in the war. And one, George Reid, arrived just as the fighting was finishing. None of them had a clue about Korea, it's fair to say, or the reasons that there was a war there, the reason they were fighting there. Um, and they didn't feel the army had prepared them that well for what they were about to do. Here's Jerry Farmer. Yeah, well, I joined as a national serviceman in the Tower of London, and we did our training, six weeks training, but that was only to learn how to march and salute. Trevor did not want to go. I wasn't very happy. I... Um... I finished my apprenticeship as a bricklayer and had my first pay as a fully qualified craftsman on a, on a particular Friday. And um, when I got home, there was a letter on the floor waiting for me. And it was my calling up papers as well. So I wasn't too happy about that then. But there you are. Um, I didn't give it much thought after, though. I mean, I just took it that... Um, that was the way things were. People needed to do two years and so just get in there and do it. I didn't know anything at all about it, really. Um, 
and I didn't know that I was definitely going into Korea until um, uh, a ship uh, docked in Hong Kong with the King's Liverpool Regiment on it. They were on their way to Korea, but they were short of men. So there were 90 national servicemen from the Welsh Regiment um, thinking they were going to stay in Hong Kong when the Welsh Regiment came out of Korea because they were about due to do that. And um, uh, he, uh, well, what happened was uh, we were all transferred into the King's Liverpool Regiment, 19 national servicemen. The last war, I think they all went to fight and then it, you had to do it all anyway, but your country was at war and that. But I end up by saying that what was wrong with us, we wasn't, we wasn't really, it wasn't like a national service, we didn't even sign for it. Like we were conscripted into it. You asked the question, did I know anything about Korea before I went out there? Well, I didn't really, not at all. Arthur Teasdale didn't know much either, uh, but he was up for an adventure. And so the war had been going on for a couple of years by the time you got there. Did you know anything about it? Did you... No, not a thing. What, what were you expecting? I don't know. I just, I just wanted to see some, get somewhere, you know. And did you, did you understand why you were fighting that war? No. No, never. In them days, you didn't know. No, you just went. But there again, I saw the world, you see. So five and a half weeks on a boat to get to place Busan, which is the port of Korea. It's Busan now, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, from then you go to a place called Seafall's Camp, which was the uh, the place you went from there to get to get acclimatised, you know. And uh, Seafall's Camp, he was there. And then after about, I think it was about six weeks, about four or five weeks, we was then up to the front line, a hill called 159. And 159 was a, it's what we first see what it was like to be, be at war, you know. I mean, I think it's fair to say that I was pretty apprehensive about things because um, I, I hadn't been in the army all that long. I didn't really, I didn't really know too much. And um, on reflection, in fact, uh, the training that I had before I went left a lot to be desired. Uh, we went into reserve and it was discovered that none of the uh, 90 Welshmen transferred to the Kings had ever thrown a hand grenade in training. Before that, you see, I did uh, seven weeks with these recruits uh, in Hong Kong. And then I went to uh, <laughs> a place called... Uh, Eh, Christ, it's gone. But that, that's where you stripped off and you got all the combat gear and they put it away. And then he said, uh, you know, this is, this is like, yeah, last night out. So that's in Japan, like, last night out. So, you know, go and enjoy yourself, like, but be careful, you know. I don't know what, no, no, I don't, I don't think I'll tell you that story, but I, <laughs> I'll just say that I was in a naughty place and I jumped out the window with my boots over round my neck and that's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and I got away. <laughs>
Yeah, that's, that's what they did there. It's striking how all of them commented on just how battered Korea was after years of war. Trevor went straight from his ship uh, right to the front line. Well, um, it wasn't very scenic. A lot of things were sort of flattened to the ground, um, buildings. But I didn't actually go into a, a built-up area all the time I was there. Uh, so, I, But I can remember all the hills and, uh, you know, it's... Uh, and we, what, what happened was we went straight into reserve. George Reed arrived just after the ceasefire, uh, but found the conditions challenging enough. When we got up, up near the gym, about midnight, I've gone, and all the lights were out, been raining, there's mud everywhere. We were showing it to a tent, like, and woke up in the morning about knee deep in mud. His jolly start it was, yeah. But Korea was bit hills and it was pretty barren. That's what I, I can remember at the time. A bit rugged, there was no buildings, all the villages had been demolished and you couldn't see any sign of them around that, that area, around where the uh, Till Bridge was. And even over the other side, there's no trace of any villages which were there before the war. The front line was static by this time and the men lived not unlike their fathers lived during the First World War. Well, when we went in, we had four companies and um, it was a case of having two forward companies and two rear companies. And um, it was basically dugouts, holes in the ground, and that's what we lived in. Um, You know, they were usually covered on the top with timber going across and, you know, to lots of earth and stuff above that, uh, so that if uh, a mortar bomb came, maybe it would protect us a bit. And what was it like when you got there? It was, it was hell. <laughs> but it's all right, it's, uh, it's, there's good and bad. I mean, none of us have been to war before, <laughs> shooting at each other with live ammunition and one thing or another. It's a funny thing, you know. There was a, a hill there called 355. She was a big hill, but they wanted it, and we weren't there to give it away, you know. And uh, you're on guard all the time you were there. And we used to go up there sometimes for three weeks or a month at a time, you know. Others went up for a week at a time. When it's static war, so should we think of it almost like the First World War? Well, it's just like saying that uh, that row of houses over there is, is on the other side of the hill and the enemy's there, you are here, and you've got dead, dead, dead men. And we had patrols out down in there on a night and one thing or another, you know. We lost 28 lads there. Four at a time in these little hutches, we called them, dug out. With that. But the signals was the best because we got the same ones every time we went. We were behind 355 all the time because they wanted that bloody hill and they, they never got it. But uh, anyway, yeah. And in there was four, like, you had, you had a sleeping bag and, and these four things. Well, the signalers, because they'd been there about three months before me, and the signalers 
had gone all the way and they got these pickets, you know, off the, off the zones. And they made four, make four, four beds, put the strung across it was, because you never took your clobber off, you know, while you're in the line. And we used to go up for sometimes 30 days at a time. You never took your clothes off? No, you could take it easy, but uh, you had to be ready, for, uh, you know, because if you're on the hill... And you were living underground? So it's a dugout, uh, you're everything's underground. underground, even the toilet, yeah. Could you walk about during the day? Could you get out? No, the... you didn't go nowhere. You just, you just, you just either on duty or off duty. There's nowhere to go. What's it like being underground, just having shelling constantly above the head? It's, t it's, it's bad when you're at the toilet. <laughs> well. There were different ones from different parts of the country, don't they? I always remember one book I used to call it the Thunderbox. <laughs> you know, it's funny the things you can remember. And what about being shelled or, or mortar bombed in your dugouts? Was that a terrifying experience? Yeah, well, that's what we needed to do. We got in the dugout and, you know, I didn't experience too much shelling on the, on the hill that we were on, actually. Um, but um, a little bit, but... Yeah, it was, you, you always wondered whether it was going to sort of hit the dugout and what happened. But uh, one, one of the lads I know, uh, uh, I always remember him because he was in the dugout one evening, one night, and we, we had a few rats around there as well. You know, you lived with, 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 with rats, not too many of them, but you did. And I remember him uh, going into the dugout and he was sitting on one end of the dugout and waiting, listening for the noise of the rats moving. And he was a bit naughty because he, fi he fired at them. <laughs> but there you are. All of them commented on the weather. Really nasty. And with the weather, of course. You know, if you could get very cold in the winter, touch metal with your fingers and skin would come off. Is a rough because all throughout the, sea, the, the year when we ran the rainy season when that all dried up and there's dust there's dust everywhere and all the, all the mud had dried out then it started raining you know snow well on christmas day we, we lived in bunkers like when you see how we lived they, we lived in bunkers we made our own beds out of wire we slept on the floor really because you're always in your gear you couldn't undress or nothing like that but it was always ready for action and do you know what when we got up, all your nose was solid. The sergeant shouting out, hold your nose, let it floor out. Anything wet in your nose, solid. My mum bought me a Croxley fountain pen to write letters home. It was called Croxley. I don't know if they still go in there, but it was a beauty fountain pen. Well, do you know that bladder was like an ice lolly? In here, in my top pocket. When I woke up in the morning, it was like an ice lolly. It was frozen solid, but it was 43 degrees below. And all the antifreeze were solid cans. So they started saying on the MT, and I got the guard some night, you've got to walk around and, and, and start one engine up and walk around to the next one, start it up. And you've got to start them up all night long, keep going. And that, that was the winters were terrible. But we done one winter and one summer. That's what we have to do in Korea. Despite all this, Jerry and Arthur in particular mentioned how much they enjoyed the experience. We used to love it, we did. Yeah, we had some good times, you know. 
good times. I never smoked at all, but used to get 50 cigarettes a, a, a week. Capstan and players, and you bang the top like that and turn it, and it was full of cigarettes. So I used to give them away to the boys. Because I had a couple made me feel giddy. I thought, oh, I can't stand this, you know. But I've never been a smoker. But a drinker, a bit of whiskey done me. I tell you that. But we never got that. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And I'll tell you what, the county of Durham, uh, mag- I've always said they were magic people, but we used to get, we used to get kegs of beer. From them, from them, and on every bar in the pubs in County Durham, had a big green bucket on there, and that was donations for the lads in Korea. We got everything. We, we, we did now get some lovely stuff, man, and we used to sell half it to the Yanks. <laughs> The British forces in the Korean War were made up from a large number of conscripts, uh, national servicemen, they were called, and they came from all backgrounds. I went out with an officer one night. Oh, oh, he's a, Tony Hopkins, his name was, an old lady, his mum and dad was, you know, an old lady, and he was a national service officer, and he was all posh. And he, he, we went out on a patrol, and the sergeant used to run it, and so on, he'd say, look, don't start that again. He used to go to... A, trench, you go, come out, will you come out? He said, if they come out, they, they kill you, you know? So he said, well, there's someone down there, like, might might be like a couple of Chinese or Koreans. He said, they've got to come out. So the silence says, this is how they come out, he said. He had two grenades on their chest, see, like, they phosphorus grenades. I've got loads of them, my, my one went off when I got wounded. And uh, he said, what you do, you take one of them, pull the pin and throw it down and they will definitely come out. You know what he said? That's against the Geneva Conventions. 
when I get a life. We used to laugh about him old Tony Hopkins. He, he was all right, he was. Very right posh, you know. But you know what he was? You know what we found out about these officers who were really posh and or educated? They, I was as good as them in one way, or my mates. Is they were educated like that, and we wasn't. But guess what? We had what they didn't have: streetwise. We had streetwise. We could tell right away if it's good or bad. But they didn't know that. That, that education they had, it was all like you know. <laughs> when he said about the, uh, oh, you can't do that. He said it's bad to do that. One fascinating story is when Jerry remembered a Chinese prisoner being brought in, who then asked his captors quite a simple question. He, he said, do you know why you're here? So, so he ain't broken English, so he said, well, I never got a clue. Like, no, so we didn't know about Korea. We, he said, we said we didn't know where, where Korea was even when we was in Korea. We didn't know where it was. The danger they faced on the front line was constant. I think when you're going out on patrol, you're quite engrossed in watching and, and listening for, you know, if you're on patrol, listening out for, for the enemy and concentrating on what you're doing because I think it's, it's a very important thing to do. Um, yeah. I, I will tell people that, for instance, when I went on a company attack uh, with the Kings, I I was extremely apprehensive. In fact, I turned around and say I was a bit scared, to say the least, you know. And um, <clears throat> if anybody ever told me that they'd been in action, a similar sort of action before, and, and it, it didn't worry them at all, I wouldn't believe them. Uh, you know, they wouldn't be human, as far as I'm concerned. There wasn't a lot of shells, but they had mortars. There was a lot of mortars coming over, and we were doing things for the Americans who was next door to us. Yeah, um, I, I can remember even um, a plane coming in and dropping napalm on the Chinese on the Chinese side. Um, whether it was British or American, I don't know. I, I would have thought it was probably American, um, but. Uh, in the daytime, it was uh, pretty risky to stick your head above the parapet, so to speak. If you moved in the daytime and you were in sight of, of the, the opposition's uh, lookout posts, they, um, you could get shelled and mortared. The Chinese used to blow a bugle, come running up the hill. And, oh, they, when you say with their hands, there were so many of them, they were unbelievable. So I spent time on 159. Then, I, then we, on, on the 28th of May, which was the uh, 1953, uh, the Duke of Wellington Regiment had got a lot of people, a lot of bad boys were killed, and, and they was on the, on the hook, on the hook. But, but, but the Chinese captured the hook back. It was the second battle of the hook. The, the Americans lost it first, but then... <clears throat> so on the 28th, we had to get all armed up at night, ready to go in the morning, and we had to go and capture it back, and that was a lot of fighting, you know, and that was my first sight of real death. Well, it rained a lot in Korea and all, and, uh, and I, I, I was on that, and I was thinking it's dangerous going out on patrol and that, you know, 
can you get blowing up one night? So there was nine of us to go over to the other side, scout around, which was the dangerous where they might have been Chinese there, and then come back. Well, halfway out, it was up to our waist, and we were struggling through the river. Suddenly, bang, bang, they had burp guns. You remember the burp guns, they called it, burp, burp, yeah, yeah. Coming from the bank in the dark, the flashing. So anyway, in front of, I, I was five there, and there was about four, four there, last time there. And, and I haven't put it in that book or anything like that, but there was a guy, uh, two Korean soldiers. They used to come out in case you want them to ask you any questions of thing, you know. And halfway through, we come under this fire. And all of a sudden, he screamed out, the bloke in front of me. We, I turned round, we all turned round, because the soldier said, oh, bolted, get back. And these little sticks of water coming from, like, what they're shooting. And all of a sudden, he cries out. And he's behind me by this time. He was in front of me, throwing out. He's behind me. Of course, he goes under the water, and he's shouting and screaming and splashing about. So I walked away a little bit, and then I thought, Oh, you know, you've got to help him. So, and I'm not really like that, you know, I tried to hide myself in danger. <laughs> and I turned round, all I could do, and, and he's shouting Korean words that turned out to be mum or something, I was told eventually. But what happened was, I got hold of his collar, and I struggled through water with, 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 with uh, a stain gun on my shoulder. I named on there pulling him, and all split, split, so they're trying to fight. Oh, yeah. When we got him to the bank, he had a leg wound that he died there and then. And we took him back dead. It wasn't just Jerry who had the lucky escapes while on patrol. Arthur had his own hair-raising story. He said, hey, Teaser, it's about the bloody time you did a patrol. I said, do you think I'm ready? He said, of course, you're bloody ready, you know. So anyway, gets ready. And I get the drummer cable and uh, all the gear. And I had a stand gun. We were one up the spout, just ready in case, you know. And we set off. And he said, hold on a minute, he said. We stopped. No, he says, I think it's all right. So we set off again. But while we were resting, at this cable, I pulled it off the rail and rolled it in my hand like that. So that when I set off to run, drop it and run like hell, you know. <laughs> he said, right, get ready. Ready? Go. Fuck me, we set off running, you know. And I dropped that cable and it all knotted up. And I had my hand on his, on his belt, pulled us both down. And where we were going to go, there was just a big hole in front. Life. Yeah. So a shell blew up. Well, he ain't coming. So it's a hell of a shot. But you see, what different places on them hills because it had been going so long on. It, that's all it was. You see, it was just patrols and that all the time. Yeah. But uh, God. Not surprisingly, both Trevor and Jerry were injured. So anyway, uh, Colonel Stevens was driving him, but he used to visit the company, a different company, every morning, five o'clock in the morning. And this very morning, he was going to D Company, which was up the hook, dangerous, you know, and uh, we started getting mortars come over, and they were banging, 
bit behind us, like it's as though they were falling us, but they couldn't have been. Or some crashed, some dirt it's in the back of the neck. So he, he said, put your foot down a bit. So I'm, I'm belting along, and all of a sudden, it was, a, it was a crash right near us. And uh, he jumped out, he said, get the Jeep. He, he actually said he'd get under cover, but there was no cover there. So he jumped out into some trench somewhere, and uh, I backed the Jeep up, and as I did, the mortar hit, hit for one metre from the Jeep. If you look at the Jeep, it's, it's a wreck, you know? But it, it, no seatbelt, which is good, because it flew me out 40 yards. And I landed somewhere down in the valley somewhere, and they all were, they all come around for, from D Company. We, we had a bloke with a red cross on his arm, and, it, and he's saying, and it, well, I couldn't feel my legs, I couldn't breathe, you know? I thought I was dying. I was really dying, right, you know? And all of a sudden, there's a face comes beside me, and it's scarlet cloth, right? You know, you're what I'm thinking, I'm really dying now, because he said, I'm the Padre from the uh, Norwegian Padre, right? Like the figure of the Norwegian army, that he, he's touring the hospital. So, as ill as I was, he said, whispered, it was all creepy, do you want to be confirmed, son? So what did I say to him? No thanks, I feel a bit better now. <laughs> and that's the truth. In fact, Jerry was wounded twice. I blew me 40 yards in the air. I went flying through the air, and when I landed, you know, I was, uh, then I got picked up by this captain, our captain Padre, and uh, he phoned up something up, and I'm laying there really rough. And uh, he said, there's an helicopter ride for you. And the Americans mash sent an helicopter over. And even that was a funny thing that I talk about. You know, you lay on the ones, two, one on each side, and they put the glass dome over you. And you know, well, I was on the side of the pilot. Like, and, and you could see him, and you know, he was a, a Mexican-looking guy. He had his hat, they burned their hats up like that. He had half a cigar in his mouth smoking. Yeah, and you know what? He looked down there and again, and we heard ping, ping. He went, oh, they've got us. And they were firing at the helicopter. And, yeah, and when, when we got to, like, when you see MASH, you know, they all come running and get you into the, like, shed things. You know what he said, last words to put, he said, well, what do you know, we done it. <laughs> Typical American, wasn't it? Trevor had a sense of foreboding before going out on one patrol. An over-eager sergeant had ordered them into no man's land, but before it was properly dark. We were waiting behind the hill for it to get dark. And what, what happened was that the sergeant said, right, let's go. And uh, I didn't tell you my rank when, when you asked the question earlier on, but I was a private. And um, I, uh, I actually said to the sergeant, don't you think it's a little bit light? before we went, before going. And, um, and he said, typical army then in those days, you do as you're told or you'll end up in a court-martial. So off we went. And it was about um, probably a couple of hundred yards from the rear to the right front line. And we were halfway down. We had to go down a bit of a, a slope and into into a little valley, and um, we 
we were going along and I thought about halfway, thinks, I think I've got it wrong, <laughs> you know. But then I, we heard pops, if, you, if a mortar bomb is, is fired, you, you can hear a pop in sound. And they dropped mortars in front of us, and then they dropped mortars behind us, and then they went, closed in. And uh, there were 13 of us on patrol. Uh, one was killed, who happened to be my partner on a brain gun. And, and in addition to being a partner on a brain gun, he, he was also um, uh, an old school friend of mine because we were from the same place in South Wales. Yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't actually see what happened to him because I was more or less right behind him, but when the mortar bomb landed, um, he was killed, obviously outright, and I had 18 pieces of shrapnel in me uh, from that mortar bomb. I presume it was that one, it could have been another one that they dropped afterwards. Because I heard a, a command withdraw, and I remember turning, um, but I couldn't see where I was going. But I turned and took about two paces, and that, that was all I knew about it then. I just collapsed, and I obviously had a lot of, I lost a lot of blood. It must have done anyway, so, you know. Arthur witnessed one instant that's, that's never left him. Maybe one day you'd see them come round the corner and they get on trucks and went back. Okay. Until one day there was two trucks coming in and there was a big hill there and my mate and myself was standing there because the cookhouse was was just makeshift cookhouse, you know, there. And he had all oh Jesus. Fuck me when there. These two wagons came in and the blokes no they were standing in the back, you know. And all of a sudden, we heard this whistling sound. Two shells landed in between the two trucks. There was blokes screaming. And, and I went across there, and the first one I come to was a bloke in Bishop Auckland, where I live. When he was in the army long before I went in, you know. And he had his boots. I used to watch for him because he had bull boots on and he was still in training. And he used to march up and down the main street, you know, because we marched at 140, you know. <laughs> and he was, and he was, he was laid there with a fucking big hole in his chest. Oh, Jesus. But that's life, isn't it? Yeah. I asked all the men whether they regretted going to Korea and, and none of them did. No. I don't regret it. Um, and I think the main reason is that there have been numerous conflicts around the world since the Korean conflict. And um, I haven't really seen much good come of the majority of them. Uh, but as far as the, uh, the Korean War is concerned, uh, yes, it, it was split into, into two, but at least the South Korean people seem to have done a pretty good job of looking after themselves. And um, 
Uh, I, I, and I think each and every person who went to help them out um, should be quite proud of that, really, you know. They definitely all felt that the Korean War had been unfairly forgotten by British people today. They don't really want to know. They say, the Korean War, what's the Korean War? <laughs> they say it wasn't a war, but it was. But there's over a thousand of our uh, soldiers buried out there in Kusang. Anyway, yeah, it's good to have done it, right? You know, looking back on it, what I can't understand, I can't, you can't believe you did do it, like, you know, it, it's so, so bad out in Korea, you know, what with the, with, you'll get blown up any minute, the mortars used to come over. When you went out on patrol, you might have to stand and fight someone, you know, I didn't want to do that, you know, on the brain gun. And you know what, I, I got, I got told off, I didn't get, you couldn't combine combined to barracks, we didn't have barracks, but I was in the front line and we, we had an attack, it was 159. And I often wondered if it was in any records anywhere because there was about 28 dead on the floor, but they was all young. They looked young, like young kids. They're in national service in China. And I, I stepped over one of them and he was looking at me with his eyes open. And I didn't really stop. I bent down and done there, shut his eyes. Do you know what the old sergeant told on me? And I went in front of the commanding, not the commanding officer, I went through with the, the platoon officer. Major Hill, he was captain, a major he ended up, and, and he said, you know what he said, I mean, we laughed about it, he said, you come here to fight, he said, we, 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 we don't really want any Florence Nightingales in their, in their platoon. <laughs> Florence Nightingale. <laughs> oh, we had a laugh. Yeah, I just went like that, but it was a terrible thing to see someone looking at you. Yeah. You know, I mean, to die with your eyes open, it's the worst thing ever, it affected me, you know. I, but I've got over it. I've come out not with, just with nerves, you know. I've got nervous at everything I did when I come home, you know. Here's something go bang and jump out of your life, but it's all gone there, all gone there, you know. And it goes at the wrong time. I, I, I give my wife a lot of credit because I was married with my wife 58 years until she died and she sort of, made it okay for me to be like, like I was. I, I couldn't, when I was going to the cinema, I got nearly end seats, you know, I couldn't get in the middle of the seats with all people where you've got to get up to get out. Uh, I had a claustrophobia about that, you know. Uh, it, not an aquaphobia, because I didn't mind going out, but it was a phobia between aquaphobia and the other phobia about be, being enclosed. There's this one, there's three phobias, the middle one people don't tell you about, which I got is you, you get nervous over doing something you don't, don't want to do. When the day of judgment comes, St Peter will surely yell, these are the boys from Korea, they've spent their time in hell. We went, way. <laughs> you think something like that up, clever, isn't it? hope you enjoyed the podcast just before you go bit of a favor to ask i totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money 
makes sense. But if you could just do me a favor, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout. <laughs>